This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. So I am sitting here and I am talking to Ricky Bruley. And uh, Ricky, would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself for everybody that is listening. Yeah, for sure. Um, first off, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, my name is Ricky Bruley. Uh, I am the creative director for Vapor Trail Incorporated. Uh, we manufacture uh, BTX bowstrings, limb driver arrow rests, and then we also a couple years ago bought Stoker Eye stabilizers as well. And um, basically, I got into hunting young kid. Uh, me and my dad used to go rifle hunting a lot. Bought a bow when I was 16, a PSE Nova which was a beauty, uh, shot in the backyard a lot, shot a rabbit was my first kill. Nice. I actually shot it with a field point. So it was a little bit traumatic because I hit it in the head. <laughs> it was kind of a, yeah. Anyways, <laughs> my uncles used to give me a hard time cause they got, I got sad about it, but anyways. Um, so anyway, graduated, went to college in Duluth, Minnesota, moved down to Arizona for a minute and um, had a family emergency, moved back to Minnesota, started working for Sportsman's Warehouse, just selling guns and uh, on the retail side, um, worked my way up into management. And then in 2006, I was in the archery department at Sportsman's Warehouse and the uh, we sold a lot of the Vapor Trail bowstrings and they were local. So Sometimes if I had a customer that needed something real quick, I would just drive up to the Vapor Trail facility and grab it. One day I noticed they were super busy and asked if they needed help. Jared Fondy was the owner at the time, and he said, yeah, for sure. Put me on a string jig, and I started building bowstrings right there. And that's kind of how that all stemmed. 
fast forward to 2009, Sportsman's Warehouse closed their stores in the Midwest, started working full-time for Vapor Trail. So I've been with Vapor Trail since 2006, and I'm currently the longest tenured employee now. Uh, the company was bought out two years ago. So the owner at that time, obviously he sold. And then um, more recently, one of our other uh, longest employees um, recently moved on. And so now that makes me the longest tenured employee. So here I am as the creative director. I do all of our marketing. I deal with uh, all of our pro staff. And I also write all the contracts as far as like insertion orders for publication ads. I do all the graphic design. And uh, next adventure is to start a podcast. So nice. The- I like it. I'm always looking for uh, new podcasts to listen to. I go on kicks. It's funny. I'll... Uh... I'll, I'll read a lot of books or do audio books on my drive and then I'll get burned out on those. And then all of a sudden there'll be a whole new trove of podcasts to download and listen to. And I'll binge yep. on those for a while until I get burned out and then I'll move on to the next thing again. So yep. it's, it's pretty good. So I'm interested, excited to see what comes out and uh, see the direction you guys take on that. Um, so you mentioned that you're from the Midwest. It's always cool to have another uh, Midwesty on the yep. show, um, Flatlander like myself. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's kind of talk about hunting history a little bit. You got into a little bit. My first bow was a uh, a Pearson and nice. compound bow. I couldn't tell you what model, but I shot the heck out of that thing until the string finally snapped. And back then, at that point, it was like, well, I could get a new string put on the bow or I could just buy a new bow. And then, yep. then it turned into a new bow. But uh, it's all been uphill downhill from there whatever you want to say i'm not really sure it depends on how you look at it but uh it's been a fun journey so what was your journey like as far as uh you know hunting in the midwest is it private land public land uh you know what what's that look like for you well mostly uh yeah it's been a lot of kind of a little bit of both i don't i don't really have exclusive access to any private land uh, there is, there is me and a buddy of mine, um, share a small, like five acre, um, winery that we hunt not too far from here. Um, just to kind of try to eliminate or not eliminate, but reduce the deer population there because the deer eat the leaves off of the grapevines for the winery. And so they want to try to get as many deer out of there as possible, but that's kind of more of a backup place that I'll go to, uh, in the past, I've done a lot of the Metro hunts. So basically what that is, is an organization called the MBRB. They enlist, you know, a group of hunters that bow hunters specifically, and there's specific areas around um, the Minneapolis, St. Paul area, like parks and uh, things like that, where uh, they're trying to reduce the deer populations due to um, car crashes and things like that. There are some sections, uh, like there's a hunt that I coordinated for a couple of years uh, that has a large chunk of private ground and um, it's like all these big houses that are surrounding this block and all their backyards butt up against each other and so the deer like to kind of hang out in that large section and so (laughs) i've hunted i've had good success i've actually shot my two biggest white tails in there Um, one of them made boone and crockett and the other one was about was like gross like 140 inch white tail so and then young (laughs) yeah and then done some uh done some um, bear hunting, uh, up North in the arrowhead region of the state. I've had, I got two bears up there. So I've had some success there last year. I hunted bears in the boundary waters canoe area wilderness, which is a very, very difficult hunt. Um, simply because there's a leave no trace policy. So you can't, 
you, you can't leave bait out, which is the primary method for um, killing a bear in the state of Minnesota. And uh, the other issue is too, is that you can't have fires that are outside of their designated fire rings. So you can't like do a burn outside of those fire rings. So basically every morning I just get up and fry some bacon in hopes that maybe a, maybe a bear would wander into camp and I could just lay some right there, you know, from the campfire, but I was not so lucky and uh, it was a very difficult hunt. I hope to do it again next year just because of the added challenge, but um Mainly here in Minnesota, that's that's mostly what I've done as far as my hunting goes. I think Public- that would prove to be extremely difficult, especially when you get up into like the big north woods like that to where yeah. it's just dense timber. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine trying to spot and stalk like you could out west if you got up on a real high bluff and were able to look into those patches of timber and watch the clearings in the meadows and things like that to where... I mean, that's a different ball game entirely and being able to not bait it, it doesn't seem like a very high success rate. I mean, that seems like it would be super tough to do. Yeah, it, it's tough. There's a, there's a couple of, I, I had watched a lot of YouTube videos just to see like what the success rate is or what other people have done. And I'm, I'm not going to call anybody out, but there was there, I've only seen two actual success videos. Um, one of them, the guy was smart about the way that he cut his video and the way that he did it, but the other guy wasn't so smart and had video of, um, you know, doing burns outside of the rings and had trail camera photos, which you're not allowed to have trail cameras. Um, you know, and again, it's, it's very remote, right? So I suppose if you're savvy enough, you could, you know, probably get away with doing it like not so legit, but, um, I just, I, that's I was not a really good way to advocate. Yeah. Yeah. I was really surprised that the guy cut the video the way that he did. Cause I was like, well, those things that you did to harvest that bear. And it, it was, it was kind of a small bear. It was maybe a hundred pound bear, which honestly, I mean, I, you know, and with that type of a hunt, I don't know if you could really be choosy. Uh, cause it is so difficult, but yeah, it, it, it it's near impossible, honestly. But I think that, uh, after this year, I learned a lot. I did go out a little too late in the season. So if I do draw a tag again this year, and if I do have the opportunity, I think I got a much better chance because I've got a better plan. I've got a better, uh, a few more tricks up my sleeve. I think that might work really well. So some big old berry patches somewhere or something. <laughs> That's about the only thing I could think of that you would have uh, high odds of success is finding, I mean, just on a abundant food source where you know they're hammering them every day and just try and prop yourself up over them and wait but we're not going to get into your secret plan and tell everybody else so that's fine (laughs) um so i'm kind of curious though as far as that urban hunt that really just kind of makes my brain work it it seems like it'd be really cool but at the same time i have conflicted feelings about it because it's just so different i i can see from a management standpoint that it has to be done but i've got i can tell you i've got a buddy that uh has lives in a subdivision that's big enough to where everybody can bow hunt they have five acres it's not against any ordinances or anything and all these houses just kind of butt up to each other like you're talking about and he's like oh yeah just set up right over here and you know, and it's like, I can see his house from where I'm in the tree stand. I'm like 40 yards or 30 yards from his, uh, his, his back, back garage. Yeah. And I'm kind of cool with it at the time. 
And then all of a sudden I see another truck pull up right into the neighbor's driveway, which I'm not too far from. But the mm-hmm. neighbor hunts or some other guy hunts a neighbor's house too. And he gets out of his truck, walks about 15 feet, climbs a giant tripod stand at the end of the driveway that somehow I didn't even notice because I was too infatuated with the deer that were already moving as soon as I climbed up into the tree stand. And I look over and I'm like, oh man, this is weird. Like, I don't yeah. know if I'm going to like sitting in a kid's playhouse and arrowing a deer, just something about it doesn't seem like it was hard earned or something. But at the same time, I, I'm not taking away from it because it's totally cool. And every time I see my buddy shoot these giant deer from there, I'm like, oh man, okay, maybe, maybe there's something to this that like I'm missing. And he, he you know, he's taking a 150, 160, uh, just, I mean, amazing deer from there. And every year I'm like, maybe I should be urban hunting. <laughs> like, what, what am I doing wrong here? <laughs> So like, how how walk me through that? What what does it feel like uh, being like so close and sitting on these urban calls like that, or even like the parks and stuff that you do? So yeah, it's it's definitely a different ball game. I mean, as far as like all of the tactics and everything that you would traditionally use, I mean, you kind of have to throw those out the window a little bit. You're you're not afforded the same freedoms that you would be in say like your own um, you know public land type of hunt, or even just on on private where you can set stands and then have cameras and then say, okay, well, the wind's not good this or, you know, this morning. So I'm going to go sit in this other stand. Like you're, you know, you're hunting with a group of individuals uh, and everybody's got kind of their spot, their general area that they sit. And it doesn't matter which way the wind's blowing. um, That's where you got to go sit, you know? So, um, and then the other thing is too, is that human scent is very prevalent in those areas. So, um, you don't really have to worry so much about your scent control because the deer are just, they're used to uh, human scent being all over the place in the parks. It's in some of the parks, it's particularly frustrating in the same sense. Like you're saying, you see a guy pull up in his truck because they, they put signs around the park, you know, saying that there's a hunt in there and they advise people um, not to go in, but people still do. And I've had moments where I'm sitting in a tree and, you know, a guy will come in with his dog, not on a leash. And the dog will literally follow my footsteps all the way to the base of my tree. (laughs) And so the guy follows and then he's kind of bumbling around and and we're not really supposed to um, uh, make our presence known. We just, we're supposed to just, you know, just remain calm and just sit there and hope that they just keep wandering off. And so, uh, you know, sometimes that can be frustrating, right? Because, you know, even though the deer, again, they're not, you know, like when you walk through these parks and stuff, you might see a few deer and they'll just keep their distance. They'll circle around you or whatever, and then just go back to doing what they were doing. Um, but at the same time, I wouldn't say it's, I don't know, it's hard. It's hard not to say that it's, that's not eat a little bit easier just simply because of those factors where, where the human scent isn't, isn't as much as, you know, it's not going to spook them as much, but again, I've hunted them for the better part of a decade and it, it's really kind of hit or miss some, you know, or not hit or miss, but feast or famine. It's like, you're either in a really good spot and you're the guy who's going to be killing all the deer or you're sitting somewhere where maybe you're not, you're not going to see any. And so I coordinated a few hunts where we would try to kind of move guys around where, um, you know, if there's one guy in particular that's having all, you know, having all the success, then we'll ask or, you know, see if they'll want to flip flop or switch, you know, so another guy has an opportunity at, at getting, you know, getting a deer. And the whole concept is, again, just to reduce the populations, 
not so much about going in and, and killing a big buck, but of course that is a, a benefit, potential benefit for it because there are a lot of big deer running around in the Metro that couldn't be so hunted many. otherwise. <laughs> so many so, big deer. Uh, so there's always that, you know, there's always that factor, but um, yeah, so I don't know. I, I didn't, I didn't, I got out and I haven't, I didn't hunt Metro hunts last year and I'm not sure if and when I'll go back and mainly just because I was coordinating hunts. So it was like every other weekend in October through November. And I have a two-year-old. So my wife was kind of like, man, that gets to be tough gone, you know, you know, cause you're gone pretty much four days. And so I was like, well, would you rather, I just took like a lump sum of time off like two weeks and then just go out West or, you know, go back to doing some of that kind of stuff. And she said she'd prefer that. So mm-hmm. now I'm back. Uh, going back out west and doing things like last year i did the bear hunt because i didn't draw any western tags so i just did the bear hunt locally um just went up and and survived in the wilderness for a week but um yeah so that that's kind of how i guess that that's my take on it um some people do say that i have had some people say oh big deal you you know you shot a you know you shot a boone and crockett buck in the no i still find it a big deal because even even though you don't have to worry about scent control, I feel like they still wind you. And my buddy even told me the buck that he took, I heard deer blowing at me, and they they winded me, and were trying to avoid me. Ended up crossing his path, mm-hmm. and he arrowed a giant man. I mean, a hundred and sixty inch deer, or maybe even hundred and sixty plus. Like, I, I don't know what it like totaled out at, but I helped him drag that beast out of the woods. <laughs> And, yeah. uh, and he was on his neighbor's property that he had permission. I was like, mm. I, don't get me wrong. I was kind of jealous. I wish it would have been me, but it was him. <laughs> you know what I mean? So there, there definitely is some playing to it. Um, I, I'm not trying to downplay it at all. It, it's, it's different. And, yeah. and like you said, that's not the expectation. But at the end of the day, man, either way, you shot a 150-inch deer. That, that's a 150-inch deer that you wouldn't have had otherwise. And <laughs> I think that's awesome. Right. And it's awesome. (laughs) And, you know, I know this, the, the, the saying is kind of cliche, but you know, they, they don't get that big by being stupid. Right. So, you know, and they've all, I don't typically see deer coming in downwind, you know, so they'll still circle around. If they do come to the call, they'll, they'll check the wind and do that kind of stuff. So they're still, they don't completely throw caution to the wind, but um, yeah, I mean, they're a great opportunity uh, to get in and, and, kill a nice sized deer for sure and also it's a great opportunity to fill the freezer because i've taken many 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 does um some of them you know back to back only a few minutes apart you know where i get out of the tree and i go down and my two arrows are literally stuck in the dirt like five inches apart from each other so there's always that too so you can always fill the freezer and there's been times where i've killed more deer than I can handle. And I'm able to donate them to food shelves or, you know, I usually got some people on tap that are interested in, in, uh, getting one of the deer that I'll, that I'll kill. So I oh, also can awesome. your family with some venison as well. That's, that's a great opportunity. I, I like that. And you know, my buddy, uh, I had another buddy that went up there and arrowed two in the same sit and he was really looking to fill the freezer. So it's, it's uh, urban hunting has its benefits and then you know you see the like i've got friends that live up in the north suburbs of chicago you know and nobody hunts up there and you've got these deer wandering through the neighborhoods that are like 180 inch 200 inch deer and mm-hmm. you know they've got nicknames in the neighborhood and nobody can hunt them and it's like oh man 
wouldn't you love that deer? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, 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 kind of sad. The the booner that I shot in there, um, actually, when I went to recover it, there was a gal walking her dog on one of the trails, and she said uh, they didn't have a name for him, but she said, "Oh, did you get the big one?" And I was like, "I'm gonna guess he's probably the bigger <laughs> one around the area." Um, and actually I was hunting a, a, a different deer that I had seen a few days prior, um, you know, a decent 10 point, he was probably, you know, upper one forties, something like that. And then, uh, the day that I had an opportunity at him, he had broken off all the tines on his right side, just the main beam was sticking out and all the tines were all busted off. So presumably the buck I ended up killing is I'm, I'm just going to, I'm just going to go ahead and say that he's probably the one that busted all those tines off. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So he's a warrior too. That's cool. Yeah. That's definitely cool. Um, so I got to ask you though, you mentioned the bear tag and then you said you just, you got that instead. Is that an over the counter tag? Is that something that's available to everybody or residents? How's that go? Um, well in the, yeah, in Minnesota you have to apply, but there is a certain, um, line in the, uh, across the center of the state where there's a no quota because they want to keep the bears up north. They don't want them to get too close to the metro. And so you can you can get those tags over the counter, but of course there's fewer bears uh, in those areas. But then uh, everywhere else, like when you start to get above that line, it's about a, I'm going to say probably a three to four year draw right now. Um, just because the bear numbers have, they're they're a little bit lower than they have been historically. And then, but in the Boundary Waters area, it's such a tough hunt that not very many people apply. So it's almost a guaranteed tag. And um, I, when I applied for it last year, I didn't think I'd get it, but I did. And the, the other thing that makes it tough is that in order to get into the Boundary Waters, you have to have an access permit and you have to apply for those access permits in January. The application for the bear isn't until april and then you don't find out if you got the tag till may so that's part of the reason why i ended up going in late because after october 1st you don't have to have that access permit you can go in any time pursuing wild game in wild places tune in to hunt stand presents saturdays at 8 30 p.m eastern waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. So I was kind of, I, I really had no choice. I didn't, I hadn't previously applied for the access permit. Didn't, not thinking I'd get the bear tag. And then I got it. So then I was forced to go in after October 1st, which is, you know, a little bit later than ideal, but that's pretty much how that system works here in Minnesota. Interesting. That's one thing I'm going to have to look into then because, you know, it might be a lot easier to do a Midwest bear hunt than actually go and do something else, especially if there's no quota and you can pretty much just draw, you know, yeah. that, that would uh, ease some of the pressure of like yeah. Wisconsin trying to apply and you guaranteed after six years, a lot of it's private land, having to find somebody that's got access to all of that or a dog mm -hmm. team like that could change the game a little bit for sure. Plus who doesn't want to go up to the boundary waters? Yeah, absolutely. And then also I just had a thought too, like, and I want to clarify um, what I had said about baiting. So you can bait there, but you can't leave it. So whatever bait you put out, you have to take it out. And so what 
what makes that particularly difficult, especially in, um, in a typical situation is you would go up, you'd create a bait station, you would throw bait out and then you would leave. And then maybe a couple of days later, come back and you keep refreshing the bait, keep refreshing the bait and the boundary waters. You just, you simply can't do that. So you can, you can go up there and while you're hunting, you can set up in your tree and you can put some bait down. But when you get out of the tree, then you got to take that bait with you back to your camp. So that's part of what makes it difficult. One thing you can do and what, and I didn't do this and mainly because it's like a six hour drive for me to get up there from where I'm at is you can go up and you can leave scent. So, um, you know, one trick that, um, I was told is just literally put scent in like super soakers and then you just go out and you spray the scent like under the leaves of the trees, because then that way it helps prevent like rain from, from washing the scent away. But then you have to be careful too, because if you're, if you start doing it too early and you can't do it consistently, the bears come in and they smell it, but then they don't see any food or bait. And then they just, they'll eventually kind of just stop coming in because they won't see anything. So it's kind of a, it, it is definitely an interesting way to go about doing it. Very challenging. And I, I look forward to trying to do it again. It sounds amazing now that you put it, you know, like that seems like a, a hunt that you get enough of the challenges that you, you definitely want to move forward and try and pursue it until you're successful maybe take some showers with uh donut baths i don't know eat so many until like this your sweat smells like donuts you know coming out of your pores something (laughs) part of the thing that i really look forward to too is that really just the bear hunting part of it is kind of icing on the cake i mean you got world-class fishing up there um you can do all kinds of foraging and they got a lot of high bush cranberries and, and mushrooms and you know all kinds of stuff that you can forage for and, uh, you know, just canoeing out there and just being out there in the middle of nowhere is amazing. It's absolutely amazing. So even, even not getting a bear, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a great retreat, you know, and it's, it's absolutely right foraging is so. my jam, man. <laughs> so speaking of foraging, do you ever do any ricing? I no, I haven't. And I've wanted to, um, there was actually a chunk of private land I used to hunt, you know, 10 years ago or so. And they were on this lake that had a ton of wild rice. I'm assuming that's what we're talking about here. Yes, we are. Man Newman. <laughs> as as the natives called it, I believe it was Man Newman. So yeah. Uh, yeah. I do, I would like to, but I have not. Yeah, that's that's uh on my list for doing this year for sure. I, I want to get out and go ricing. So I'm going to try and make that happen. And if it requires a boundary waters permit or whatever I need, then hey, might as well apply for a bear tag too. Yep. So <laughs> And if you, if you don't, if you can't get access, like you can also look at some of the outfitters out there. That's one of the, that's what makes it somewhat difficult to get the access permit is because they all get gobbled up super quick because outfitters jump on them real fast. Um, but then you can also, so if you don't have the ability to get an access permit, you can look at some outfitters up there and they can usually get you access that way. Nice. Nice. So let's shift gears a little bit, Ricky. And, uh, Talk vapor trail because there's a lot of cool things, um, you know, that, I mean, like you said, you guys make strings. You've got the limb-driven rest. I've got a buddy who says that's the way to go, the only way to go. So let's mm-hmm. kind of dive into that. What's, uh, let's start with what's it like working for vapor trail? How cool is it knowing mm-hmm. that you got some of the best products out there and you work for them and you've been doing it for a long time, as you mentioned earlier, um, just kind of go into that what it's like and then uh you know what what you see coming in the future 
Yeah. Uh, well, you know, it's, it always helps to, you know, enjoy or, or have a passion for what you're doing. And, you know, like I said, it all just kind of started out as more of, you know, try helping, helping some friends out. And then when I was in need, then they helped me out. And so again, just, you know, a great organization uh, to work for. And, you know, there's been some changes recently. And so kind of trying to adjust to some of those changes, some good, some just a little bit different, but again, just trying to adjust to some of those changes. But, um, you know, always been the owners have always taken really good care of me. And so that's what keeps me around. And then again, like I said, just the passion for it, right? Like we just moved into a brand new facility. We went from, I think, 2,500 square feet to 28,000 square feet. So quite a big change. Now we opened a pro shop. We've got a 40 yard indoor range and just, just kind of looking at what we built here and looking back to when I started the original founder of the company, Jared Fondy, he passed away in 2014 and just kind of looking at what we've built this into from what it was it just kind of makes me wonder like if he, you know, if I was him, I'd be proud. You know what I mean? So that that's a big thing for me too, is just one of the things that's really kept me here is trying to kind of um, continue that legacy of what he started mainly, you know, we're going into our 30th year now of building bowstrings. We have our own proprietary VTX material and we have a process that we've honed, um, you know, over the years, of course, but it all started with, with Jared um, and his methods and and how he taught me. And we've just continued to pass that along. So it's really, really cool to see how it's evolved. Um, the limb driver was developed in 2005. And then now we have eight, eight different iterations of it. Um, well, technically probably 50 different iterations, but eight technically that, um, have, have been brought to market. Um, we originated limb driven technology and then it, uh, kind of took off. Um, I think Hamsky was the next company that started making them. In fact, I think that's what really launched their company was limb driven. And then from there, some other companies have got on board too, but, um, Initially, the technology was kind of, you know, it was a lot of people were like, yeah, I don't know about that. You know, it's not going to work, whatever. And then and then it really kind of started to take off. Some professionals started to see the benefits of limb driven technology and how forgiving it is and how it can help increase your downrange accuracy. So that really helped take off. And and so here we are. Awesome. So you actually kind of covered I've got some uh, some listener feedback that. uh they had some questions for you that they wanted to address and um, vapor trail has a proprietary string material called VTX. They're curious uh, how it's made or how it compares to BCI uh, 452X and X99, which are both Dyneema and Vectran. So Mm -hmm. um, what is your product and and how does it compare to those? Uh, well, I can't get too into detail about the material makeup just because it's it, it is proprietary. However, I can say that it is it is also Dacron and uh, or not. Wow, Dyneema. <laughs> you might need to cut that part. It's out. all I'm good. Just, <laughs> actually, terrible. Um, so Dyneema and Vectran, and it's just a different percentage that we found, like a. Um, a different ratio that we found that the, you know, cause the Dyneema is designed to kind of move a little bit, have some 
um, elasticity to it. And then the Vectran is really what makes it really stable. But if you don't have a good ratio between the two, uh, then the Vectran kind of starts to break down over time because there's too much stress being put on it. So you got to have the right amount of Vectran in there. And we have what's called a thicker denier that we use uh, per strand. So we we run a, a, a lower strand string. Typically like 452X, you're looking at 22 to 24 strands. With our VTX material, we run uh, 14 is standard. Split cables end up being 16. Uh, if you got an 80 pound bow, we usually like to add a couple of strands just to add a little bit of um, you know, longevity to the string because 80 pound bows can have a tendency to be a little, a little harder on the string. So it adds some longevity to it. But um, yeah, we've just found that it holds up that that ratio tends to hold up better in varying weather conditions. So if you're going from say, you know, you've got uh, you're practicing in Minnesota in the dead of winter, and then you're going to go down to Arizona and hunt javelinas or something like that, you'll see very little change in, in how your string moves, if any at all. A lot of times, you know, back when the, before the material was developed, uh, Jared, one of the issues he had is he was, you know, he was shooting, um, doing a lot of target shooting and he was traveling. Like he'd go down to the Western trail shoot down in Southern California. And you, you see tons of guys on the range shooting their bows and and their peeps are twisted up and goofy things are going on. So they're having to like recite in and make adjustments to their bows because of that weather change. And that was really what kind of inspired him to create the material. And it was originally formulated with Brownell and now Brownell is out of business. And so, well, I think they're back in business, but so we took the material to BCY, our formula to BCY, and then how they manufacture the VTX material. So it's very similar in makeup as far as having Dyneema and Vectran in relation to 452X or say BCYX. Uh, it's just, we have a, a very specific ratio and the thickness per strand is a little different. And that's what we found makes it more stable. And then, so if somebody did want a string, they can just go straight to the website order directly through you guys and put in their specs and pretty much custom tailor a string, right? Yep, absolutely. Uh, yeah, we have a VTX um, bowstring customizer. We do also offer 452X. And then, because we got a lot of guys that just really, you know, it's it's a proven material. There's a lot of guys that just prefer to, you know, if they've been using it for a long time, that's what they prefer. So we want to have that offering for them. And then we also offer Mercury, which is 100% Dyneema material. And mainly we offer that because uh, it offers a little bit of added speed. I mean, kind of splitting hairs a little bit. It's not, you're probably not going to see a lot of extra speed. And then the downside with that, because it doesn't have Vectran <clears throat> is over time, it is going to elongate. So you have to typically, you know, um, you know, over time, you may have to make some adjustments to your bow, or your timing might go out or something like that. So it just kind of depends. It's kind of a toss up. If you want a little bit added speed, you're going to, um, sacrifice some stability and vice versa nice yeah i'm definitely curious about all that and after people started submitting those questions and so i've got another one from somebody that says uh it's i don't even know if it's a question it's more of a comment but uh <laughs> vapor trail is basically the best damn rest in the business all the <laughs> models they use save uh, use the same limb driven design, but just with different options as far as launcher arm cage adjustments. But uh, what sets you guys apart from probably your largest competitor is Hamska? Is that what you, what they're called? I don't even know their name. 
Hamski. Yeah, Hamski. Hamski. So uh, what kind of sets you guys apart uh, from them and makes, makes, in his opinion, way superior, but... Well, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a tough one. They, they make a great rest. And, uh, the, one of the guys that started Hamski actually used to shoot our rest. And then we, you know, we had some discussions, he had some ideas that he wanted to, wanted us to kind of start to utilize. And, um, Jared at the time was just like, nah, the design we have works pretty good. So we're just going to stick with it. And then not too long after then Hamski was born. And so, uh, as far as like what makes our superior, I think, you know, one of the things that we have that they don't is we originated the technology and we also have a very, uh, simple design. So it's not complicated. There's not complicated mechanisms that, uh, have a greater chance of failure. And our rest is also quite a bit lighter. So we have that advantage as well. Uh, now the one thing that we don't have obviously is we don't have a mounting system that would fit their core mounting system at this point. And we have discussed potentially trying to work something out in that area because that is really starting to take off the mounting option toward on the front of the bow. And uh, we did recently develop a integrated mounting system that fits that IMS, but they're two different uh, mounting systems. So right now, if there's a guy that really wants to use that core um, Hamski mounting system, uh, we don't have an option for that. So that's about that's about the only thing that the only disadvantage I would say that we have. But uh, like I said, we originated the technology, we started it, and uh, we just try to keep it simple as, as simple as possible. So there's there's no chance of failure. That's I like simple, and I've had multiple failures on rests in the past, especially when the whole fluid dampening technology first came out. Um, I can tell you that I went through three rests in one year, and it was oh, wow. a brutally cold winter. I was hunting late season. Uh, I had a limited window chasing a certain buck that I thought for sure I was going to kill, and mm-hmm. I actually drew back on him at one point. And my last rest was frozen with the dampening and it was stuck up like this. And my arrow goes, bam. And the thing, the whole thing broke yeah, as that good. was happening. And I missed that buck and he took off and I never saw him again. Uh, so. <laughs> worst nightmare, huh? That was a worst nightmare scenario. Went to the bow shop, you know, slammed it on the counter. I'm like, this thing is junk. And they're like, no, that's a fluke, you know, and I got another one and then another one. Luckily, I didn't pay for each one that it was warranted, but uh, there was definitely some problems with that. And I actually shied away from that company for a long, long time until uh, I purchased a new bow. So, (laughs) I mean, there's definitely some drawbacks. So let's talk real quick kind of, uh, is there a preferred rest for like to say the hunter versus the you know, target shooter, or I mean, are they pretty much kind of even across the board as far as what somebody prefers? Well, I mean, I, I think a, a majority of our uh, audiences are are hunters, so we definitely sell more of your hunting style rests. And basically, any of the ones that we have that have a cage on it, the you know, the Pro V, the Pro VX, the Gen Seven, the Gen Integrate, uh, depending on you know what kind of setup that you have. Uh, that's most most certainly the more popular version for anybody who's hunting. And then we have uh, 
like a more enhanced version of our very original aero rest that we ever came out with. It's called the micro elite and that uh, caters more towards your target shooters. The nice thing is, is that you can run it off the limb as a drop away if you want, or it has adjustable spring tension. So you can put just a standard, uh, you know, say lizard tongue, uh, uh, launcher on it and then you can adjust the spring tension depending on the weight of your arrow and you can just shoot it right for the spring as opposed to actually having to use it as a drop away you can increase the tension lower the tension however you want to do it um, in order to fit your setup so it's been a and again just a simple design um, it, it's not super complicated you know it's got micro adjust on it so you can make quick quick and easy adjustments things like that so but yeah i would definitely say um right now our more popular aero rest is our gen 7 um well it, i guess it's kind of a toss-up but the the gen integrate is very very popular we just released that rest but of course it only works on the integrated mount, mounting system um so but overall uh, i would say our gen 7 has been our most successful aero rest and the gen integrate is the same thing just a different mounting system so so when you talk about adjustments, because I'm the kind of guy that unfortunately trusts my bow shop a lot and recently though have come to find out that some of some techs aren't as great as they claim to be and later on you find out a lot of things and now it makes me want to work on my own stuff a lot yep. more. Um, but when you talk about all these adjustments, I mean, is it pretty dummy proof to where anyone like me, a knuckle dragger can do it or is it... Uh... <laughs> <clears throat> Yeah. I mean, it's super simple to set up. I think, you know, uh, I've had some people kind of, especially like bow technicians, like who've been in the business for a while that are only used to a cable driven style rest, you know, they see one and kind of scratch their head, but when you walk them through how to set it up and how to do it, it's like, Oh wow. Yeah. That is really easy. And I mean, you can do it. It's, it's so fast. It's so quick. You don't need to have a bow press, which is, which is great because again, most people don't have a bow press and for cable driven, you don't necessarily have to have a bow press in order to tie a rest into the cable, but it's also a little bit more complicated to do that way. You got to be a little more competent and have more experience with tying them on, um, without, pressing the bow and running the cord through the center of the cable, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so with this design, I mean, you, you mount the arrow rest, make sure it's level, tie your cord on, um, you know, get the cord attached to the rest, pull the arm in the down position and draw it back. And as long as that cord is going completely slack and the arms coming all the way to the up position, um, it's, essentially ready to go. I mean, you got to, obviously you got to do your tuning and everything from there. You got to, you know, check your center shot and your height and, you know, shoot through paper and, you know, do all the typical methods that you would use to make sure that your arrow is, is flying true coming out of the bow. Uh, but aside from that, yeah, it's very simple. Your windage adjustments, just one lock screw. You just unlock that, move the rest to the position you needed to be in. The same thing goes for the elevation and you're good to go. Our, uh, our Gen 7 is unique in that there's an actual bubble level in the mounting bracket. So you can, if you have the bow level, then you can just, you know, you run the bolt through the, the mounting bracket into the burger hole, and then you've got a bubble level on the mounting bracket to ensure that the rest is, uh, is perpen or, yeah, perpendicular to the string. So uh, nice. pretty, 
foolproof. Pretty foolproof. And we got some pretty good instructional videos online too that kind of help you with that process. That's awesome. One of the other things I wanted to talk about was uh, the marketing campaign or the 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 design was that you that created that because it was definitely a child of the 80s slash early 90s because as soon as i saw the marketing materials for these rests i was like dude gi joe like screaming in the back of my head (laughs) and every single model i was like oh that's awesome oh that's awesome (laughs) i honestly wish that i could take full credit for that i did design the packaging yes uh and the logos everything um However, it was our owner that had originally kind of thought about it. I don't know if he was, I, I don't know the exact story. I'm guessing he was just kind of brainstorming or, you know, just sketching in his sketchbook. He does a lot of that. He's also an artist and um, he just presented the idea to me and I was like, that's fantastic. And I was <laughs> so looking forward to getting started on it. So it was a lot of fun to design um, just the process and then trying to think, okay, so who do we like, do, do I just come up with some fictitious characters to put on the packaging or how do we, how do we approach that? And so then of course we wanted to go with a few partners that we already work with. So Jason Matzinger, uh, he's on the GI8X packaging. And then we've got Steve Eklund from the edge uh, out of Canada um, that we put on the GI8. And um, just, I, I just reached out to them and said, Hey, how would you like to be a real American hero? And they both are on board. Like immediately. So um, that was a lot of fun. It was really cool to put together and it was, it was really fun to, you know, have the posters at the show at the ATA show and the attention that that got people just coming in out of the aisles and just, you know, coming to a screeching halt and then turning and coming into the booth. So, um, it's really been a good, uh, a good, um, marketing uh, effort. I think that's worked out. <laughs> I think it's awesome. I think it has to work really well, especially with, you know, that certain age range of people that automatically recognize it and now associate with something. It made me want to buy one of each just so I could collect them just like a GI Joe. So (laughs) yeah, there was talks about even trying to have like an action figure in there, but that would have been just, uh, that would have blown our budget way out of the water. (laughs) Maybe a trading card or something, but (laughs) see on the cake if we could have done something like that (laughs) no it was awesome uh ricky it's been awesome talking to you getting to know vapor trail archery and the product uh i think it's really cool and it's something i'm gonna have to add to my arsenal in the future that's definitely uh gonna be down the road um and now you really 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 have me looking forward to uh getting an access permit doing some ricing and then coming back later to do some pair hunting so there you go that's a good idea appreciate it coming on if somebody wants to reach out to you and uh maybe have you on a podcast or questions about archery products uh where do they go for all that where can they follow you guys on social media all that good stuff well you can find us on instagram at vapor trail inc uh and then also um we're on facebook and then um i'm on both as well as uh uh, ricky brewley 1980 um, actually, I think it's Ricky Brewley 80. Uh, but if you're unable to find me there, I'm uh, I'm tagged in a lot of stuff on our Instagram and Facebook pages as well. So you can find me through that. And um, yeah, uh, I love doing podcasts. Be happy to do more. So if anybody's looking for a guest, hit me up. Awesome. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me.
Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. Through the Blackwater bayous and in the dark Louisiana night floats a duck camp, alive with the sounds of swamp pop and the smells of Cajun cooking. Mississippi Delta in Venice to the Cajun prairies of the Southwest. Me and the Duck Camp Dinners crew will be hunting and eating it all. This is Duck Camp Dinner. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. For even more content, be sure to watch the original films from HuntStand Presents on the Waypoint TV channel every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Visit waypointtv.com to learn more.